Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Welcome back to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Podcast Series, Interviews with the Experts. My name is Sharon Hayes. I'm a non-invasive cardiologist and vice chair of faculty development and academic advancement for the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine here in Rochester, Minnesota. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Katherine Larson. She works as an advanced ECHO fellow, soon to be going on faculty in July, and her focus over her academic career has been on athletes with structural heart disease, a focus on echocardiography and how safe it is for them to exercise and what kinds of things we need to talk about in sports cardiology. So today our topic is sports cardiology for the general cardiologist. And I'm very excited to welcome you here. Thanks, Dr. Hayes. I really appreciate it. It's so exciting to be here and talk about this field that I have uh, so much excitement and interest in. Well, I think there's growing excitement or at least a recognition by us um, non-experts in sports cardiology that there are we're increasingly being asked how do we counsel people, whether it's people with valve disease, arrhythmias, or coronary disease? So what makes sports cardiology different than other areas? And, and why is it important for those of us who maybe haven't focused on that to know about it? Yeah, no, I think your point is exactly spot on and that a sports cardiologist really delivers a special expertise in the care and the understanding of athletes uh, and the conditions and environments and demands that are placed on them. Um, in the United States, this uh, additional expertise can come through a specialized training. So some people actually will do an extra year of subspecialty training in sports cardiology, but that's a relatively newer phenomenon here in the United States. And so oftentimes people who are considered experts in the field have gained that expertise through experience, uh, through clinical and research experience, and may have a particular interest in a particular type of heart disease in athletes or a particular risk in athletes or particular types of athletes. Um, and so really the field here in the United States is quite uh, heterogeneous, um, but it's really a growing part of our practice. And as you said, I really think it's an important thing for cardiologists to be conscientious of and understand that uh, sports cardiologists really can uh, understand the unique situations, the unique exposures and stresses, and oftentimes the unique counseling and risk stratification that happens among athletes. And really sports cardiology is founded in the fact that regular intense physical exercise has impacts on heart structure and function. And so we know that athletes are, you know, often under operating under situations that are very different than what non-athletes might be exposed to on a day-to-day -day basis. So whether that's athletic competition or a very intense training regimen, but it also really has grown to encompass what we would call occupational athletes. Um, so those are people who are involved in types of employment or careers where the physical demands placed on them might mirror those placed on, you know, competitive or professional athletes. So if you think about things like a firefighter, where they're really going to have to have good cardiopulmonary fitness. Um, there's a level of strength and resistance training that probably happens there. So the field has really grown to encompass not just athletes, but those who are involved in any sort of routine, high intensity physical exercise. And for many cardiologists, really, I think what they probably initially thought of with sports cardiology was pre-participation screening, right? It's trying to evaluate young people who are going to be going off to college and enrolled in competitive athletics. And I think that's where a lot of the field started, but has certainly grown from there. 
And so now we're seeing more and more patients with heart disease, older patients, you know, people in their 50s, 60s, 70s who still want to be out there and competing in marathons or half marathons or triathlons um, and trying to balance uh, the risk of either known or potential cardiac disease in those patients, things like hypertension or coronary disease, atrial fibrillation. So although the field may be started more so with young athletes, uh, it certainly evolved as our population has evolved to seeing older athletes as well. And I think that's an important area where we offer some unique expertise in trying to understand the environment and exposures that those patients are encountering and having to deal with. We really, I mean, have the same goal that any other cardiologist is, is putting their patients through is to put our patients in the best situation to, you know, be active, um, live the lifestyle that they want to live, but to remain safe and to remain as uh, unburdened by symptoms as possible. So you've made a great case. And I think I, I hadn't really thought about those occupational athletes, because really that is an important part of many people's daily jobs. And certainly um, in, in some of the areas I take care of where I have to advise against prolonged Valsalva um, for after a SCAD or something like that. We're going to talk a little bit about those who have acquired heart disease and being an athlete, but tell me a little bit about how are the hearts of athletes different, particularly those who are occupational athletes or professional athletes. So really, this comes at the heart of what sports cardiology is, because in the United States, this field really grew out of just a simple observation that young male athletes, initially, oftentimes they were collegiate rowers, were being seen for medical care. And people were noting that they had very large hearts. Uh, and really, that initial discovery just on basic chest x-ray was something that uh, kind of sparked a lot of the interest in what we describe as exercise-induced cardiac remodeling. And so we know that the heart is a muscle, just like any other muscle in the body. Body and will change and adapt to the environment and stresses that are placed upon it. And people who exercise a lot do so enough to change the structure and function of their heart. And so it's very important for us to understand the type of exposure that uh, an athlete is undergoing. So we oftentimes classify them into endurance athletes. So patients who are, let's say, running or cycling or engaged in kind of longer duration, but less intense physical activity or let's say patients who are heavily involved in resistance exercise. So those may be sports like weightlifting or things like American football, where the um, considerations of isometric force and afterload may be a much different situation than what a cross-country runner might expose themselves to. And we know that those different exposures have different manifestations in the heart. So the heart of a cross-country runner is not and should not look like the heart of someone who's completely sedentary. And the heart of a cross-country runner does not and would not not be expected to look the same as, let's say, an Olympic weightlifter. And so I think that's really where a lot of the expertise and knowledge of sports cardiologists can be helpful, uh, is often we're seeing things like chamber enlargement or um, slightly reduced LV function or RV function, and then putting those into proper context is really about what the field of sports cardiology can offer, I think, I think especially um, if you're not frequently seeing athletes being comfortable with understanding how much cardiac remodeling is to be expected. And then when that starts to cross over through what we might call the gray zone in terms of is this pathology or is this physiology? And that's really where the expertise in sports cardiologists can be helpful. So that's oftentimes where we think the basis of the difference in the athlete heart look different than let's say the sedentary heart. But as you pointed out, the same can be true if it's not athletic exposure, no matter what type of exposure it is, if there's a lot of physical exercise as a component of, let's say, an occupation, the same principles remain. 
and really, I think it's important for us to think about the structural adaptations, but there's also electrical adaptations. So potentially the consequences of things like very high vagal tone and what those might do to heart rate or heart rhythm at rest or with exercise. And then as patients get older, we see that there's probably some things that happen over the course of many years to decades um, in terms of heart structure and function that may manifest later in life. And we're kind of left, let's say, seeing a patient in clinic who's in their 50s or 60s and trying to decide how much of you know, their bradycardia is appropriate or inappropriate, how much of things like you know sinus arrhythmia or different types of AV nodal block are appropriate or inappropriate. All of those, I think, really have to be put in context of the athlete and what they've been doing for their life or their recent training. Um, so really, we know that the heart of an athlete is different than the regular heart, and interpreting that in the appropriate context is really where the expertise of a sports cardiologist can come in handy. So as a sports cardiologist, I would think sometimes you are being asked to clear a patient for some job or particular, you know, D1 athlete or to do a particular event. You know, I think sometimes we cardiologists rankle a bit about clearing somebody for surgery. So um, this must be sort of the same sort of thing. So how do you go about just starting that, um, you described risk stratification, but but what where does the sports cardiologist come in? And also, I guess, when as a general cardiologist, should we be looking for that kind of expertise? The short answer is there's no clear answer, especially here in the United States. Um, it's been an ongoing discussion here and in European countries for many, many decades as to what type of testing should we do, what type of testing meaningfully reduces the risk of bad but uncommon outcomes in young athletes. Um, how do we balance that risk with the potential for false positives and false negatives? It's really a very complicated issue. And unfortunately, the issues of, let's say, you know, availability of appropriate follow-up and appropriate testing and the potential costs of those testing also comes into play. I'll just be totally frank with you in that the United States, there's really no great perfect answer and it's uh, different depending on where you are and what type of athlete you're seeing. But I think to your point, the concept of clearance is just as complicated for us as it is for those who are seeing patients before uh, non-cardiac surgery or cardiac surgery for that matter. And that really, there's no black and white issues um, and understanding Again, the exposure that the athlete's going to be asked to you know, encounter or the types of situations that they're going to be put in and interpreting their personal history, their family history. I mean, really, I would say a ton can be obtained even from just a basic ECG, but again, interpreted in the appropriate kind of context and in someone who has a good understanding of what normal manifestations of athletic remodeling are on an ECG and what's abnormal. Um, so it's really an, a, a simple question, you know, can this person be cleared to play, but a very complicated answer. And I really think understanding some of that nuance is where the kind of help and consultation of a sports cardiologist can be healthy, helpful. And I would completely agree with you that the concept of clearance is almost never a black and white question, but really just involves a very careful discussion with the athlete, um, given the situation that they're in. Well, I think you, you uh, right at the end there, you said is being having access to somebody with an expertise in this can help that athlete 
with that shared decision making about what may be their career, right? Yeah. Uh, yes. uh, whether it's a professional athlete who am I going to take it to the next level or uh, the uh, occupational athlete, which may have implications for safety or shifting careers. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think one of my favorite questions to ask athletes when we meet them in clinic is why are you doing you know, the activity you're doing and getting a good sense of what their goals and motivations are? Um, because that really so importantly frames the discussion then about risk stratification. If you understand why they're doing what they're doing and what the pressures are on them to go back to perform or to step out of play if it's deemed appropriate. So to your point, I think understanding the situation they're in really frames that discussion uh, in a very important way. So is there such a thing as too much exercise? Another age old, but excellent question. I think in reality, in life, all things in moderation are probably uh, the most appropriate things. Um, in athletes, there's certainly a couple of situations where we think about too much exercise. And I would say when we talk about too much exercise, it's often about intensity and duration. Um, so people who are habitually exercising to very high degrees for many years, not necessarily someone who um, is doing so for a couple of months. There are a couple of interesting relationships between the duration and intensity of exercise exposure and cardiac pathology. So two of them come to mind just immediately. One of them is atrial fibrillation. And we know with some very good data, especially out of Scandinavia, uh, that older male patients who are lifelong endurance athletes probably have a higher risk of things like atrial fibrillation as they get older, or they develop it, let's say, earlier on than we might expect based on their other risk factors. And that kind of U-shaped curve is something that is pretty well established in male athletes, but interestingly has not yet been seen in female athletes, whether that's for lack of evidence, um, you know, is it evidence of absence or absence of evidence? I don't think that uh, has completely been delineated yet. But that is certainly one thing where I think the data is relatively robust to say that people who are really at the extremes of endurance exercise for many years, those male patients may end up having some uh, risk factors for atrial fibrillation down the road. That would be somewhat surprising given their other risk factors. One other area that's been a topic of much debate and actually came up at the uh, annual meeting of the American College of Cardiology is coronary calcification. So here too, uh, unfortunately, most of the data is from older male athletes, but there is some data to suggest that those who are really kind of at the tip of the pyramid in terms of lifelong exercise exposure may have higher rates of coronary calcification than what we might expect based on their risk factors uh, and their age. And so there's some potential interesting hemodynamic interactions or questions about, let's say, permissive dietary habits that exercise might facilitate. But we've seen that come up a couple of times, and I'll say that neither of those two topics is without you know, some robust research debate and discussion. Um, but those are two areas where certainly the field has been kind of intrigued to find that potentially a lot of exercise exposure may have some potential long stream or long term outcomes for those patients that are not as favorable. But the good news is, I think the major takeaway is, again, all things in moderation. The moral of the story for most patients is that we should all be moving more. Um, I think there's probably a little bit of danger in extrapolating from what we see at the very top of the pyramid, more so to the general population. And that 99% of the patients a cardiologist sees, we should be encouraging them to be more active and not less active. But there's always exceptions to that rule. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's just like, yeah, there is one or two patients that are eating uh, too little fat, right? I have had mm -hmm. one in my career, but that doesn't mean that the vast majority of my patients could maybe cut back a little bit. Um, yes. The many couch potatoes that we see, they probably don't need your services as a sports cardiologist. <laughs> 
Yes, well, we we see um, a whole, I think, again, it's just kind of the interesting part of um, being a cardiologist and being a clinician is kind of getting back to that question of motivation. Um, I think some people feel like, you know, athletes must just be such a, an easy population to work with, but really, you know, they have good habits and bad habits, just like all of us do. Um, and they just may manifest in a slightly different way. So I think having an understanding of how the psyche of an athlete works also comes in handy uh, from a clinical perspective, because at the end of the day, we're all just people. And I think oftentimes the motivations may look slightly different, but at the end of the day, they're very similar between us. So this is a very small and early field uh, Mm -hmm. that is expanding. And obviously not every individual who has heart disease or who is an elite athlete can see a sports cardiologist. What types of patients would most benefit from seeing someone like you um, be referred by either an internist or a general cardiologist? First and foremost, if there is someone who is being seen again by a general cardiologist or an internist who, let's say, has a concerning family history or something abnormal on an ECG or an echocardiogram or physical exam, and they're the type of patient who wants to be out and be competing and be very active, those are the types of patients that I would say occupy a large proportion of our practice at this point. And certainly, again, interpreting those types of findings or those types of histories or concerning ECG things in the appropriate context of that athlete is something where I think we can offer a lot of expertise and hopefully uh, some reassurance. So that's one major component. And I would say the other one is patients who are athletes or highly active who are having symptoms. Um, And I think the other thing we oftentimes see is, you know, these patients who are extremely fit, who maybe have exertional dyspnea or palpitations or declines in their exercise tolerance and are rightfully sent for exercise testing, but then often dismissed and told, well, you're very fit this must be normal. And yet they still have lingering symptoms or concerns. And so I think those types of patients also really benefit from the expertise of a sports cardiologist. The people who are told that, you know, things are normal, you're fit, let it go. Uh, We've certainly encountered some very interesting pathology in those patients and kind of relied heavily on our expertise in terms of putting athletes in stress testing situations that are most likely to trigger the symptoms that they're having or interpreting, let's say, cardiopulmonary exercise testing in patients who are extremely fit. That can be a challenge to look at those tests and interpret them appropriately when you're used to interpreting them, let's say, for an otherwise sedentary, you know, average American adult. So I would say those are the two major types of patients that we probably see most commonly. I would say a third common one is patients who have known heart disease, whether it's valve disease or coronary artery disease, and are really looking for some additional kind of counseling or potentially even risk stratification in addition to what they might have received from their general cardiologist. Um, So oftentimes we'll put those patients through um, more advanced exercise testing to get a sense of heart rate responses and blood pressure responses and training zones. One of the things that we rely on very heavily here at Mayo Clinic in Rochester is the expertise of our exercise physiologists. So PhD level physiologists who really have an innate and very comprehensive understanding of the physiology of highly functioning athletes and can provide them with some exercise prescriptions or exercise recommendations um, if they're trying to get back to being active after having dealt with a cardiac issue. I think a lot of my patients could certainly benefit because uh, we've, I've had a number of patients, you know, they do 150% of predicted on a stress test, even on a cardiopulmonary stress test, and have basically been reassured, but they know, because I think the other thing is 
people who exercise all the time, who that's their occupation or their profession, or just a very regular avocation, they know, right? They can sense they have a higher attuned to their body. And a lot of the testing available to general cardiologists isn't really for that top 1% or the tip of the pyramid to discern what's changed. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. And again, a lot of it just comes down to the ability to appropriately exercise test those patients, right? You may have someone who's a competitive cyclist who wants to come in and do a cardiopulmonary exercise test and they can beat the bike, so to speak. Um, And the same goes on the treadmill, you know, making sure you're running them on an appropriate protocol, um, making sure that you've put them in a situation where you're going to get the data that you need. And that's really where the expertise of a sports cardiologist and a very uh, knowledgeable exercise physiologist physiologists can come together and hopefully provide some answers for those patients. We don't always find clear limitations, but we find them enough where I think there's a lot of patients who are probably dismissed to be told things are okay, where there might be something there. It just hasn't been investigated in quite the right way to uh, manifest whatever the pathology is. Well, I can tell with your enthusiasm, you're excited about joining this field officially uh, soon. What do you see as sort of the future of this and, and how do you see advances in sports cardiology in the next few years? And how do you want to be involved in that? Yeah. So uh, the first one that comes to mind is really just tackling some of the disparities that exist. I think a lot of what we learn about in terms of the historic, you know, research precedent and known data about athletes and cardiac issues and cardiac disease comes from the study of young male athletes. Um, And that's really problematic, uh, especially as we start to encounter, you know, I think about Title IX was passed in the early 1970s. The females um, who were enrolling in high school sports uh, in the 1970s are now entering their later adult life, their Medicare years, and are probably going to be encountering some cardiac issues. And so if those were habits that were formed early in life, I imagine that there's probably a lot of missing data, let's say a missing information that we have about that particular population. And again, just to harken back to the atrial fibrillation or coronary artery calcification data, that's almost exclusively in male patients. So I'd really like us to try and tackle some of those uh, disparities in that Uh, aspect of the research. And unfortunately, the same goes for um, other, let's say, socioeconomic factors, right? There's um, been predominantly a focus on, uh, let's say, collegiate male athletes playing certain types of sports. And we know that athletes are a diverse group. Patients practicing non-traditional sports or occupational athletes or um, athletes from different parts of the world or different parts of the country who may come in with very different exposures or histories. Um, And it's important for us to kind of evaluate those and uh, Um, I think, understand the context in a more holistic way than maybe we have historically. The other part that I think is kind of an exciting and growing portion of the field is really the concept of gathering data and wearable technology. I think we all know patients who exercise avidly with their heart rate monitor or their Apple Watch or have a Strava account. There's a lot of anticipation that there could be some very interesting data to be gained from there. It's oftentimes just a question of trying to figure out how to access it and how to use all that data appropriately. But I think this is not something necessarily unique to sports cardiology, right? It's just that we've encountered a lot more data out there and we're going to have to figure out a way to evaluate it and put it into best clinical practice for our patients. So I think the concept of wearable technology and wearable monitoring is going to be something that in the long term will probably uh, have some significant manifestations in our clinical practice. Thank you, Dr. Larson, because I've learned a lot today, and I think I can think of a couple of patients in the recent past that I probably should have referred for the next steps based on their um, their concerns, and I'll, I'll reach out to them and have them 
join us and join you in the sports cardiology clinic. This wraps up this week's episode of Interviews with the Experts. I'd like to thank Dr. Larson for joining me today and discussing this important topic. And we look forward to you joining us again next week for another interview with an expert. Be well. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.